today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Inez Delicatera is with us now. Inez, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate this. Sure, thanks for having me. How big a story is this? How concerned are people in Washington about this? Huge. Uh, I mean, very concerned. So you, you know, I'm not sure how much you touched on this earlier, but basically multiple explosive packages sent to the homes of uh, multiple high-profile targets. So one was sent to the home of former President Barack Obama here in Washington, D.C. That package was found this morning. Another package was sent to the home of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in upstate New York. That package was found late yesterday, and both packages were found in the mailroom during routine Secret Service screenings. A third package was also sent to the CNN uh, newsroom, so or rather the uh, the Time Warner Center, which is where the building out of which the CNN uh, New York team works. That package was also found in the in the newsroom. We're told that package contained pipes and wires, that it was a rudimentary but functional explosive device. And this is all the more concerning, given that earlier in the week we found out uh, that another package had been sent to George Soros, who is a billionaire philanthropist, a big Democratic donor. He also received an explosive package, also in his mail. Um, So the big question is whether all of these incidents uh, are linked. And we're just now learning that uh, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's a high-profile Democrat, the former uh, chairwoman of the DNC, she may also also have received a uh, a suspicious package. Uh, Obviously, these seem to be happening all in the homes or or places of Democrats or, or those that have supported them. Has Donald Trump responded to this in any way? So Donald Trump has not yet. We did get a statement from Sarah Sanders. Uh, she talked about condemning all of this, uh, how the Secret Service has launched an investigation. Um, she says, you know, she called it a terrorist attack, and, and she says it's it's not normal to be terrorizing people like this. Um, but, of course, the big question in the room and the kind of uh, the, the, the big elephant in the room, rather, is, uh, you know, whether this was all politically motivated. motivated. So what do George Soros and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and CNN all have in common? Well, they've been big targets of the president's and of the far right. So we're still waiting to hear from law law enforcement officials, um, you know, whether they have any suspects, what the motive may have been. Um, But they are treating, we have been told that all these packages, the the ones sent to the homes of uh, Clinton, Obama, uh, Soros, and then the package also sent to uh, CNN, that they were all nearly identical so they are being treated right now as kind of linked incidents. Uh, is there anything more we know about the devices? How large, how much damage they could have caused had they had gone off? Were they sophisticated devices, do we know? So what I'm hearing is that they were rudimentary but functional and that they contained pipes uh, and wires. Uh, and again, that they were all nearly identical. So this really does seem to have come from the same person or, or groups of people. Um, but that's all we know at, at, at this point. Uh, how close do we know uh, were these things to going off? Or were they designed to go off when someone opened them and then they were caught during the screening process? That is my understanding. Um, and the, C- the Secret Service has said that uh, you know they were not necessarily afraid for their protectees' uh, safety, that uh, they have these uh, kind of um, mail. So all three of these packages were found in uh, the mail, and the Secret Service has explained that they have these mail screening procedures in place for that very reason, to ensure that none of these suspicious packages uh, would make it to the individuals they're protecting. So they're saying that even though, for instance, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, former President Bill Clinton, was at his home in Chapico when the package arrived, uh, that they feel that nobody would actually have been at any risk because of these measures that they have in place to screen the mail. 
Uh, any comments from the victims, the Clintons or Obamas or any of these people involved? Not yet. We're still waiting to hear uh, to hear more of that. I was just doing back-to-back hits, so it's possible that they've come out with statements in the last few minutes, um, but not that I've seen yet. The, the biggest statement was from the uh, White House, which, again, uh, condemns the attempted violent attacks recently made uh, against President Obama, President Clinton, Secretary Clinton, and other public figures. Um, that's Sarah Sanders. It's a quote from Sarah Sanders. Any sort of information in regard to the source of these? Obviously, it appears to be tag- targeting those on the left. Any any sort of information where these are coming from? Yeah, that's the big question. Is is we don't know at this point, um, and and I'm sure officials will take a, a while. You know, it typically takes a, a few few days to to figure out exactly who is who the suspects are in these kinds of attacks. Officials are careful to not give too much information out early so that it doesn't, you know, hurt the, their investigations. Um, again, we don't want to speculate, but it certainly seems that the one thing these four targets have in common is the fact that they are on the left, that they've been big targets of the president's. Um, but we'll have to, we'll be watching that closely to get more information with regards to suspects. Obviously, uh, the screening process has worked here, and, and thank goodness for that. Uh, has anybody commented that if these Uh, packages were opened, the sort of damage that they may have caused? I mean, they certainly wouldn't have, uh, you know, they're not harmless. They are explosive devices that are functional. They could have certainly, they are capable of of killing uh, people is what we're we're hearing. So um, it is truly uh, a blessing that nobody was hurt. Um, The big question also is whether any more packages have been sent out. Are, you know, senators and congressmen and women, uh, does their mail get screened? Are they at risk of of these, these types of packages? I can tell you that here at the Global D.C. Bureau, we actually work out of the NBC Capitol Hill newsroom, and we've been informed that the so NBC is taking uh, precautionary measures. The fact that CNN was targeted, they're worried that they could also be targeted. So our front desk here has been instructed not to touch the mail. Uh, and in fact, no mail may even be allowed into the building uh, today. So certainly everybody in, in, in Washington on, on high alert today. And only Sarah Sanders has commented on this. Anybody else from uh, the, Repu- the Republican Party commented on this? So, like I said, I was doing back-to-back hits right. for our uh, Vancouver station, Toronto station. So, I actually have not had a chance to go back and look at Twitter. As of, uh, you know, 30 minutes ago, the only statement I had seen was from Sarah Sanders. Um, but it is possible that in the last few minutes, uh, you know, the, the Trump and, and others have, have come forward with statements. And as Della Katera has been with us, Washington correspondent, Global News, make sure you're watching uh, Global News tonight, 5.30 and 6 for more on this. And as thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter since October 17th and the legalization of recreational marijuana in Canada. Hamilton landlords are moving towards pot-free apartments, some sending notices out saying they're working at becoming smoke and cannabis smoke-free. Uh, also from, uh, from cultivation, we've got uh, uh, one notice here that was sent to us from an apartment building that was recently uh, put up uh, regarding tenancy, uh, or sorry, tenancy agreements effective October 17th of this year. And for the duration of the tenancy after 
uh, thereafter, the tenants and occupants of the rented premises shall not engage in the uh, cultivation or growing of cannabis in a rented premises or the residential complex. A breach of this rule shall be sufficient basis for the landlord to seek termination of the tenancy based on the tenant's interference with the legal interest of the landlord and other tenants of the residential complex. If there are human rights codes issues where the cultivation and growing of cannabis is deemed necessary to accommodate the needs of a tenant or occupant of the rented premises, such activity shall not be conducted at the rented premises or the residential complex. Uh, That is in regard, this note specifically in regard to people who want to grow and cultivate cannabis in their rented apartment. Uh, Other uh, Hamilton landlords moving towards a smoke-free environment where they don't want... um, uh, and, and maybe piggyback, piggybacking this on, on cigarette smoking, but they're trying to get it out of their uh, units altogether. Uh, to talk more about this and, and what are your rights, what can you do, what can't you do, what should you be aware of, Matt Maurer is joining us, Vice Chair of the Cannabis Law Group at Torkin Mains LLP, and with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. So what is the deal now? What can residents do and what can't they do in a rental apartment unit? Well, it really depends on the, the rental unit you're in, what your lease says, and if, it, if it's a condo, uh, what the declaration and, and the bylaws and the, and the rules say about what you can and can't do. Can you have or enforce a no-smoking rule in your, uh, in your building, like for all units, uh, over and above, uh, 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 obviously, places that are common places? What about in the unit itself? Can you ban people from smoking in their unit? I think I think the answer is yes, but we're going to find out. Uh, certainly, in a recreational context, um, you know, you can in a condo specifically, they can make rules that promote the safety, security, and welfare uh, of the owners, and to prevent unreasonable interference with other residents' use and enjoyment of their units. So, to ban smoking certainly falls within those guidelines, and we've seen them ban tobacco smoke in the past, and that's fine. I think the issue is, one, when you cross into sort of the medical realm, and, and two, when you start banning other methods of consumption. Uh, that being said, your landlord does have the right to set out the conditions uh, within the unit itself, so if they want a non-smoking building, they can have that. Well, it's an interesting question. You know, the landlord can set out in the lease um, what you can and can't do. Whether or not a landlord can unilaterally alter the terms of your lease um, mid-tenancy without giving you something in exchange for it and you agreeing to it is a different question altogether. Uh, in BC, they, when the law, when the provincial law was passed uh, regarding cannabis, they put in a provision that deemed all existing leases to have, uh, I don't know the specific wording of it, but it's basically you couldn't smoke or you couldn't consume in a rental unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the case in Ontario. So, you know, if you're, if you're living in a, in a rental apartment and your lease doesn't say anything about prohibiting cannabis or smoking or whatnot, and your landlord suddenly, uh, you know, through unilaterally altering your lease, tries to change it, that, that very well could be problematic for the landlord. So really, this is or would be about new tenants coming in then, as opposed to those that may already been there prior to this? Yeah, it should be, uh, except when we're into a condominium building. And if, if the, the rental unit is within a condo building, as, as many often are, the condo building could take uh, steps to, to change the rules um, and, in theory, change the, the, the bylaw to, to, to change the way people can consume or grow or whatever the case is in that building. What's the difference between rules in a condo and rules in an apartment building? 
Well, uh, look, the Condominium Act specifically provides that um, the corporation can make rules, um, like I said, to promote the safety, security, and welfare of owners. I don't believe there's any statutory ability for, you know, if I own a small apartment building with eight units in it, um, I'm not sure of any basis which I can just set rules unilaterally um, around the use of, of, of the building and, uh, and the apartments other than in the lease itself, which, as I said before, if you're in the middle of an existing tenancy, that's going to be a problem to just up and change um, the agreement that you've previously reached. Uh, is this, would it be different for cigarettes or cannabis? Does it matter if it's tobacco or cannabis? I guess if a building has banned smoking, they're probably more likely to ban cannabis. If a building allows smoking, can you then ban cannabis? Yeah, I think for on a practical level, buildings that have banned smoking are, are probably more likely to follow suit. And again, the issue, I think the fundamental issue is, are you banning the smoke uh, the smoking of cannabis because you don't want you know you don't want it wafting out in the halls you don't want it wafting from one unit to the next um, that's one thing if you're trying to ban consumption of cannabis in general I think you're going to have a harder time because what what argument is there that uh, a resident shouldn't be allowed to use oil you know dro- a drop of oil under their tongue. Uh, within their unit, how well, is that any different than than having a beer in your in your apartment? Well, and how are they going to know, right? I mean, at well, the end of the day, uh, that's what gives pot away is because, like you said, it wafts into other units. If you're consuming it in some other way, whether it's an edible or what have you, or even vaping for that matter, although that might be uh, across the line as well. Um, if you're not going to offend other other um, other tenants, my guess is they're not going to bother with you. No. Well, that you you would think so, but we're seeing you know some landlords come out and and try to ban, or some condos come out and try to ban complete consumption a- across the board. Which, you know, I I question why. Like, you know, I understand if you want to ban the smoking aspect of it mm-hmm. for the same reason you would want to ban cigarette smoking. Like people in the building, let's use a condominium building, um, they make a decision through the board that. Um, this is what we want in our building. We don't want the halls to smell like cigarette smoke. We don't want we don't want it to you know waft from one unit to the next. So we're going to get rid of that. Um, and I could see the same thing with cannabis. You don't want the the smell of the smoke, uh, you know, permeating throughout the the building. But to go and say you know you can't let's you know edibles are going to be edibles are already legal if you're going to make them yourself, but they're going to be legal for commercial sale within the year. So how can you tell someone? You can have a beer, but you can't have a cannabis beer because mm-hmm. because why? Uh, what about what about the argument? Hey, I can smell Buddy's dinner down the hall. What difference does it make if you can smell my smoke? Yeah, yeah, not not a not a bad. You know, the analogy's not not too bad. Um, you know, the difference is. How do you stop someone from cooking what they feel like cooking? Yeah, um, I guess eating's walking. a little different than smoking. Eating's <laughs> a little bit different than smoking, but the concept is is you know it's still there, which is when we're looking at restricting. You know, when you're living in an apartment building, you're living in a condo building, you're living in a small community, and you know you're balancing someone's right to do whatever. Let's use a condo because they own the unit. You know, you're balancing someone's right to do whatever they want in that unit with the fact that how you do things in that unit impacts someone next to you. For the same reason, condo boards will pass rules about no loud noise after 11 p.m. or, or, or midnight. You know, I should be able to blast 
my music at 2 a.m. as loud as I want because I own the unit. Well, guess what? Someone lives upstairs, downstairs, and next door, and they're not going to be too thrilled with that. So you've got to try to find that balancing act. Do you think this, uh, na- uh, this other notice that I read to you was in regard to cultivation? Uh, obviously an issue with apartments. You wouldn't think that that would be an issue, but I guess it is, uh, considering smoking might be an issue. Uh, is this harder? Does, is one law easier uh, to enforce than the other? I think the I think the smoking aspect of it will be for for certainly recreational purposes will be relatively easy to enforce. Um, I think arguably you could there's an argument to be made. We're we're going to find out at some point. One of the provinces, someone's going to make a human rights complaint over this, and we'll find out. But you know, could you ban smoking for medical purposes? Um, the patient would say, I'm I should be able to smoke and take my medicine however I want. The, the property owner would say, no, there's seven other ways you can, you can consume your medicine. You don't need to smoke in this building. Um, when it comes to cultivation, you know, then the question is, you know, does banning cultivation really promote the safety, security, welfare of the owners? I, I don't think, you know, off the top of my head, I can't see a good argument as to wh- how it interferes with another resident's use and enjoyment of their unit. Um, but if the landlord or the, the, the board could come up with a... Um, you know, a crafty argument that whether it's going to be increased hydro usage, which everyone shares, or whether there's going to be potential issues with mold or things like that, those will be the type of arguments that will be made to try to make cultivation bans stick. Uh, what about things like electricity, water, and, uh, you know, they, they say that there's mold issues with grow ops, but, but is it, are we wrong to confuse a grow op with someone who's growing a plant or two? I think you're definitely wrong to, to confuse a grow op with a plant or two. Um, you know, look, you're allowed to grow up to four in Ontario in your, your residence. Um, you know, and some people say it's only four plants. Um, you know, I'm not a botanist, but my understanding is that it's not like your regular, you know, plant you can put on your windowsill and you're going to be okay with. If if you want to do it properly, um, you need, you know, 12 hours or so of, of constant light on these plants. So there is, I think there's some argument to, to be made that it's not just like any other plant. Like if you, there's going to be more resources on, on hydro and maybe water. Um, but how much extra resources, I don't know. And is it material and does it impact the building and does it impact, you know, the cost? If, you know, if we're all sharing the hydro and it's included in our common fees or our maintenance fees, um, should I have to pay for a massive spike uh, in my fees because half the people in the building want to grow something that requires 12 hours of light every day? Are you seeing an uptick in these cases post-October 17th? Has it been relatively calm? What's your reaction to life after October 17th? Uh, it's not much different than immediately before October 17th. A lot of people were, especially on the, the property owner and the landlord side, they were trying to figure things out in advance, which is a good thing. And people haven't been necessarily racing um, to go out and... and, and challenge the um, various rules and bylaws and the lease and all those other things that have come into play. But that doesn't mean it's not happening. And it's going to take a little while to work through the system. You know, someone's got to make a complaint. They've got to go to either the landlord and tenant board or, or the superior court or the human rights tribunal, depending on the nature of the complaint. And then, you know, there's going to be a ruling. 
then it's going to get appealed and it's going to slowly work its way up the system. So I think you're, I think you're going to see it happen because I do think there's landlords and owners that are taking unreasonable positions. I think there's going to be tenants that are going to take unreasonable positions and somewhere along the line, and, and there's going to be some people that are just going to challenge it just for the sake of challenging it because they want to find out mm-hmm. you know, where the boundaries are. What the so, limit is. Yeah, it's only a matter of time until... You know, these cases might already sort of be in the infancy and underway, but it takes a li- there's a little bit of a lag from when it occurs unless someone calls up people like you the day they make the complaint and say, hey, I just want to let you know that I'm going to court in case you want to follow this case. Most people don't do that. So you have to sort of wait until it gets reported and you start seeing what, what's, what's happening on the ground. So my next point, as you just suggested, it is just a matter of time before this ends up before the courts. Once we get a solid, balanced case before the courts and we see it run through, will that then be the norm? And then everybody will just refer to that. Yeah, it will it will depend on the circumstances of the case. If the case doesn't have really unique facts um that sort of distinguish it from, you know, being able to be generally applied, then I think yeah, you're going to get some good guidance on on um on how on things you can do and things you can't do as a property owner and as a landlord. Um I certainly think the medical aspect's going to come relatively quickly and it's going to come through the human rights tribunal where because I know that there's landlords that are saying you can't smoke it, you can't, you can't consume it at all. Consum- banning consumption at all is problematic, and there's going to be medical patients that are not going to put up with um, being told that they can't smoke, and they're going to challenge it regardless. And I think as long as those cases aren't really factually unique, um, they are going to provide some good guidance. That doesn't mean there'll be there'll be more, and it'll be definitive, and that's that's the end of it. But I think it'll it'll give people some clarity on where things sit. Uh, you talked about the concerns, obviously, in and around medicinal. Wouldn't we already know those since medicinal has been around for, for quite a while? Wouldn't we have already dealt with that? Why would we see a spike post-October 17? If, if for no other reason other than landlords weren't really paying, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but they weren't paying attention prior to October 17th. You know, it's someone's got a medical uh, prescription, and we're not going to make wide-sweeping rules on banning cannabis uh, consumption in the property. They just It didn't occur to them to do it. And now with October 17th, they're thinking, well, this is going to be a real issue for us. Maybe we should, we should take steps to, to limit how people can consume. And they're casting the net over medical patients as well, which now for the first time is sort of impacting their rights that otherwise sort of flew under the radar prior to October 17th in these buildings. Are we in a gray area now as far as um, confusion, as far as knowing what we can and can't do? I mean, I guess in in the eyes of the law, it's not gray, but are people aware of what they can and can't do? Um, You know, look, it it depends where you live. I think think it it depends on how clearly... um, you know, your landlord or your condominium board has set out the rules. And I think, look, the way it works is they, they can make a rule, and that's the rule, and you have to, uh, you have to live with it unless you apply to, to have it challenged and overturned. So I think we're in a little bit of a gray area as to where this might end up uh, at the end of the day. I think we have relatively, you know, there's some relative certainty as to how things are going to shake out. But, you know, day to day, is there uncertainty? I, I think the answer, you know, on a real technical level is no. They pass a law or they pass a rule, sorry. Um, that's the rule and you've got to live with it 
until you decide to do something about it and get it changed. So say you're a person who's living in an apartment, you've been there for a couple of years, there's no mention of any of this in your lease, uh, all of a sudden, uh, post-legalization, this becomes an issue, your landlord tells you this can't go on in his unit, and you resist, what happens? Well, if I'm the tenant, I'm, I'm, I'm first saying, tell me the basis on which, you know, the Ontario government has now come out and said, I'm allowed to consume this anywhere. Um, where I can otherwise smoke a cigarette and I'm allowed to smoke a cigarette in my, my apartment. So on what basis are you depriving me of the right to, to smoke cannabis, whether, you know, is it going to be an amendment to the lease or, you know, what, what's the legal basis behind this? And depending on the footing um, that the landlord's on, I would be pushing the issue further and saying, um, no, this is, you know, there's, there's no justifiable basis for you to do this. And, um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to challenge it. I think with with private landlords, um, you know, look, if I own a single in the city of Toronto, for example, if I own a single condominium unit in a building and I rent it out, uh, but it's not otherwise a rental apartment building, it's just a condo building. If the condo corporation permits smoking of cannabis in the building, on what basis do I as a landlord have to restrict that ability with an existing tenant, like how do I, we, we made a contract, uh, you're going to pay me X amount in rent, and here's what you get in return. And now I'm going to put another additional restriction on that tenant um, without giving them anything, anything back. So how do, you know, what's my basis to do that? When it comes moving forward to new tenants, um, certainly I think I could put in clauses to say, listen, if you want to live here, it's it's just like I would say it's smoke free. It's going to be cannabis free, and if you don't like it, don't rent my place. Yeah. Uh, as a recreational user, it's you know I find it hard to figure out where they would go to court or to a tribunal to challenge um, my decision to decline to rent to them on that basis. If you're a medical user, um, now we're back to the human rights tribunal. Right. Where it's like you know, you know maybe I'm discriminating on the basis of their disability. Matt Maurer has been with us, Vice Chair of Cannabis Law Group at Torkin Mains LLP. Matt, thanks for the time. Uh, Probably more confusion before clarity. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interest rates went up again today. Ooh, you cringing? And it looks like uh, the trend is going to continue. And certainly the wording from uh, the head of the Bank of Canada has changed a little bit. So we could see these more frequently than in the past. Uh, the Bank of Canada rate up. It, uh, it I, I guess at the end of the day, that was uh, inevitable, up to 1.75%. To talk more about this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and on the line now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, how much of this is related to NAFTA or and the new NAFTA, or is this just part of the process moving forward? We always knew these were going to go up. Well, it's both. Let me explain that because it sounds contradictory. Uh, the rates are, for the last 10 years, have been at historically unprecedented low levels, never seen before at these levels. So this is really abnormal. The last 10 years have not been normal. We think it's normal. It's not. It's really weird because interest rates throughout my lifetime, and I was a former mortgage manager in the 1970s at the Bank of Montreal in Ottawa when rates peaked at 20%. Now, that was abnormal in the other extreme. Those were the highest ever seen in our country. 
but rates down when the prime drops down to 0.5. That's as far out, as strange, as weird as mortgage rates at 20%. I remember talking to experts about this way back when, and after the rates got to that level after they went that low then it was how long are they going to stay low and it seemed that we said that for about five or six years before we finally realized that appeared to be the new norm for now clearly that's changed that is correct and so what's driving it is is uh the growth rate in the economy the underlying fundamentals and now to uh, to to address that sort of apparent contradiction the underlying fundamentals, the economy is very, very strong. The uh, unemployment rate is very low. U.S., it's at the lowest, I believe, in 75 years, the unemployment rate. Uh, the stock market is doing gangbusters. So the fundamentals are very strong. But then overlaying that was the uncertainty for Canadians and the Canadian economy of the ongoing negotiations with NAFTA. That was, you could say, temporary because that wasn't going to go on forever. So for the period of that uncertainty, that was uh, disciplining or slowing down the bank from responding. That's now off the agenda, as we all know. We had a trade agreement that reduces that uncertainty. So now we're back to normal, if I can call it that, normal times. And the underlying fundamentals actually, and this is what the Bank of Canada said today very clearly, and I agree with them, call for higher interest rates. I know that sounds, you know, probably a little weird to some of, of your listeners, but remember the Bank of Canada is and has been for a long time committed to what's called price stability where they're trying to balance growth with inflation. They don't want too much inflation. The bank actually has a target, 2%. They, below that, it's too tight. Rates are too tight, too low. Uh, above that, it's encouraging where the rate, when the inflation starts to get above 2%, they're worried that it's going to become embedded into the system, as we saw in the 70s when I was a young man and when I bought my first house, like millions of others, boomers, and the house prices were going up 10 and 12% a year because inflation was going up that rate or level. And that was considered very, very bad for the economy. Every serious economist will tell you inflation is very bad if it becomes embedded. So they try to balance the growth rate in the economy with interest rates. Right now today, the Bank of Canada governor said the the nat neutral rate, what he calls the neutral rate, of the, that's the Bank of Canada neutral rate, is between 2.5 and 3.5, where it doesn't encourage inflation, but it doesn't suffocate growth. Right now they're at 1.75, not 2.5 to 3.5. That suggests we're going to see some additional increases to bring us up to the 2.5 to 3.5 range over the next year. Many have said that the wording, that the, the words that Stephen Polas used this time was different or has been different than in yes. the past. Yes. What was different about this announcement? Less nuanced, less, less caveats. Uh, before, they were using all kinds of, uh, I'll use my sort of flippant phrase, uh, weasel words and, uh, you know, uh, caveats and uh, sort of almost excuses. You know, well, if this happens and that happens, so lots and lots of caveats. This time around, today, uh, far fewer caveats. They're saying, look, people, expect future rate increases. So I thought it was much more straight talk, straightforward talk warning us more rate increases are on the way. Now, we're not talking gigantic rate increases. They're, they typically are going up one quarter of one percent at a time. And remember, I know there's all kinds of people saying the sky is falling in because the rates are going up. Most of us are not going to be affected immediately by the rate increase. If you have a locked-in mortgage, and about a, I believe the figure of the stat right now is about half of all the mortgages are locked in for you know two years, three years, four years, that sort of thing. 
uh, a closed mortgage, uh, you won't be affected by the rate increase until your mortgage comes up for renewal. If you have a fixed-rate car loan, don't get your knickers in a knot. They can't change the rate. The only people that are going to get whacked are the people are hurt, are people that have a floating rate loan, such as a HELOC, home equity loan, that floats, uh, or any kind of a, a demand loan where the rate, or the rate is tied to prime, like prime plus one, prime yeah. plus two. If you have a fixed rate loan, then you're okay. Credit cards, uh, you know, are you're okay only because they charge such outrageously obscene high rates. They don't raise them up higher. You know, all the department stores are at like 28%. The Bay and Hudson's, uh, Home Depot and, and Rona and so forth, all those cards are at 28 Well, they don't go up and down when rates go up and down because their rates are so high in the first place. Mm. So the only people that have to worry are people with floating rate mortgages or floating rate uh, um, uh, loans attached to their houses. Uh, does this, uh, you know, you, you talked about how these are going to go up uh, incrementally, a, a yes. quarter point at, at a time. You also talked about the day when you were in this business and you saw them go to 20. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of people that still have that in the back of their mind. What's the difference between them going up at this period of time and way back when? W- will that happen again? Can that can that so. happen again? I, I mean, I'm I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the reason why was that was a very unusual period. I'm talking the 1970s before uh, the the central bank of the United States finally uh, threw in the towel and said, "That's it. We're 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 going to snip this in the bud." And they literally did. It was Paul Volcker. Uh, throughout the 70s, we had uh, stagflation. Where the every year that went up went by, the inflation went up. It didn't stabilize it, you know, two or three or four. It kept going up year after year. So what did all everyone do in the workforce? They demanded bigger rate increases in their wages the following year. So everybody was playing catch up, and of course everything was ratcheting up: real estate prices and car loans and cars and worker salaries and everything. And then finally, Paul Volcker, who was the central, the the the, the head of the Federal Reserve, which is the American Central Bank said, enough is enough. This inflation is killing us. It is, is damaging us to the economy. He said, I'm going to keep jacking up interest rates until I squeeze inflation out of the system. And he did. He jacked it up so high that he created a massive recession. But it killed inflation. <clears throat> Anybody who says it was a terrible thing, what he did, he killed inflation in the 1980s. Then we came back, and then we had really good growth throughout the 80s and the 90s. And so now we've embedded a low rate of inflation, so-called inflationary expectations of you and me and every worker is much lower now. The central banks achieved their goal. They want us to have in our heads an expectation of about 2%. And ever since the 1980s, that's been the case. So I don't believe that inflation's coming back in a big way. And if that's the case, high interest rates are not coming back because they're completely tied to inflation. Now, if inflation took off on us and went back up to four or five or six or eight, yes, you would see that central bank rate start tracking and following it to, again, squeeze it like a bug to get it out of the system. What's causing inflation to go up? Well, then it was, I mean, there was this huge influx of my generation called the boomers in the early 70s. And we all wanted to try and buy a house at the same time. And we all did. <laughs> and, uh, and we all wanted a job, and we all wanted a good job, and we all wanted a car, and we all wanted furniture for our house. Mm. And it was just, it, I think it was just an excess of supply 
of demand, excuse me, over supply. And it was just this giant, you know, the proverbial metaphor of the uh, the snake eating a, a giant rodent or something. And so there was the, there was this huge bulge working its way through the entire economy called the baby boom. And we dominated. I mean, we were just absolutely dominant in terms of our impact on the economy. Well, that's gone, of course. The millennials are now taking over. And, uh, so, uh, and of course, we learned a lot. So although we made those mistakes in the 60s and the 70s, I think the central bankers and the finance ministers are much more astute today. They're aware of the symptoms of the disease, and they know when to step in and and apply some medicine, which, of course, is, you know, it's like the Buckley's medicine, and I don't work for anybody in any of these companies, but, you know, the medicine tastes awful, but it, but it works. Um, same idea. The interest rates hurt, but it will keep inflation tempered and stable at around 2%. And by the way, I'm just telling you exactly what Governor Polaz is saying, because I do read his annual and his semi-annual reports. And this is exactly coming out of the Bank of Canada Governing Council. How concerned is he that Canadians are leveraged the way they are? I mean, you know, we all hear about buying yep. the too big house. The, just yep. We're locked into this debt. I mean, if they do start going up, we got a problem on our hands. How concerned is he about that? They, uh, they publish a report every six months. And... Um, it's called the Monetary Policy Report, which is a kind of, I tell my students, it's kind of a funny name. It's really their strategic outlook on the Canadian economy. And it's really good, by the way. And it's written in plain business English for those who can, you know, read business English, like the business newspapers and the Globe and Mail report on business. It's not written in gobbledygook and, and mumbo-jumbo gar- jargon. I mean, it's technical. It's got lots of graphs. He has said that this is one of their major concerns, but he believes it's containable and it's, 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 it's not going to cause a system collapse. I agree with him uh, for a, maybe different reasons. As I said, I was a mortgage manager throughout the 70s. I lent millions and millions of dollars. I learned a lot about the Canadian people in the 70s. I learned, and it was my joke, but it was a true joke, I mean a, a serious joke. I said, you know, the thing about Canadians is that they will go and rob a bank in order to get the money to make their mortgage payment on their house to the bank. And I saw that in the 19, early 80s when interest rates went to 20%. People mm. were predicting that Canadians were going to be, there was going to be massive foreclosures across Canada, millions of houses being foreclosed on. Never happened. The delinquency rate in Canada went from one-third of 1% for all Canada to 1%. 1% is trivial. That meant 99% of Canadians at 20% mortgages were paying their mortgage on time. Mm. I saw Canadians coming into my branch, making their mortgage payment, and the husband and wife had lost their job. And I would just sit there and marvel, marvel. What was going I'm sure mom and dad were helping. I'm sure they were, or brother and sister or family. Mm. But the point is, Canadians will make their mortgage payment no matter what. My joke is they'll even go rob the bank to get the money to make the mortgage payment. I do not believe there's going to be a housing collapse. The people have to live somewhere. You know, when people say you're going to give up your house, what are you going to do, live on the sidewalk? So you're going to live either renting or owning. You know, it's A or it's B. The light switch is on or it's off. That's why I don't believe that there's going to be a housing crisis. What will happen if people lose their jobs? I'm not naive. People do default. They stop paying their credit cards and they stop paying their car loans as a last resort. Mm. But there's other things you'll stop paying. You will make your mortgage payment to the end of time. You will default on your credit cards first. Then you'll default on your utility bills. Then you'll default on your your bank loan. 
My point is Canadians have a very clear understanding of financial credit, and they understand what they can do, what they can't do. And that's why I'm not worried about a housing crisis. I'm not saying we won't have a recession at some point. I'm not saying there won't be credit card defaults and bank loan defaults on consumer loans. But I'm not saying that I do not believe it will hit the uh, at the real estate market. All right. Uh, Ontario government uh, freezing minimum wage for the next couple of years. Going to keep things at $14 uh, until 2020. Also uh, eliminate the two guaranteed pe- uh, paid sick days for workers, among other things, as part of this bill. Your thoughts on that? Uh, was it too much, too quick? We just had the uh, Ontario Federation of Labor on uh, the F- Ontario Federation of Labor on on this, and obviously uh, they're they're quite upset about it all. Is was I, it too much, too soon? Uh, by you mean the Liberals or the Conservatives? Uh, let's start with the Liberals. Well, I I was very very critical. I do not belong to any political party, nor do I donate to any political party. I have studied this. I have. I also experienced for three years, from the time I dropped out of high school at the in grade twelve at seventeen, I was on minimum wage jobs for three years. I know what it's all about to be on minimum wage, and my own daughter's on minimum wage as I speak. I understand this market, and I have. I am very strongly in disagreement with the Ontario uh, Federation of Labor and the former government. Minimum wage jobs are the bridge for the naive, young, completely inexperienced person, human being, at the age of 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, into the grown-up world of good jobs. But you don't jump from being completely incompetent, knowing nothing about anything, into a good job. And what you do, what you learn about everything from literally things like, you know, washing and shaving every morning and having a shower and dressing properly and looking respectable and learning how to speak in sentences politely to customers and so forth. You learn that in minimum wage jobs. Second point, three-quarters of all the workers on minimum wage job are under the age of 25, the vast majority living at home with mom and dad. That's what we hear from people like this, though, is, is that, you know, more and more people are living off these minimum wage jobs. That if they have two or three. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to be very blunt. I've written papers on this. That is statistically hogwash. Are there some? Your listeners may be getting angry at me, saying, oh, I know somebody. Yes, there are a very small minority who are dependent on minimum wage. The vast majority are not. They are bridge jobs to the future, to good jobs. So by jacking up the price, it's just the same argument as the carbon tax. Make something more expensive, and what do you do? You use less of it. You know, people that support the carbon tax turn around and support increasing the minimum wage. They don't realize they're contradicting themselves. Hmm. They're saying increase the carbon tax so you use less carbon, less fossil fuels. Increase the minimum wage, guess what you do? You use less minimum wage people. And, the, the, I mean, I've seen this anecdotally because uh, I walk into stores that have a lot of minimum wage, and I can, and I can see it in the data in the, in the, in the, in the, um, the, the, uh, the entry-level jobs. And I'm not saying it's going to ruin the economy. Of course not. We're a very wealthy and very successful economy. I worry about our young people. They need the opportunity of that entry-level job to get experience so they can work into a better job. When we increase the minimum wage, we reduce, as businesses rationally reduce and economize on minimum wage jobs, they reduce the number. No, they don't get rid of them all. They just reduce the number, so thereby reduce the opportunities for young people that have no experience, like I was when I was 17 years old, many, many years ago, and I so foolishly dropped out of high school. Uh, you said 30, uh, three quarters of those on minimum wage are 
are under the age of 25, correct? That's StatScan data. So uh, that being said, why is this getting so much momentum if it, if, if it uh, involves such a small percentage of the population? I've puzzled over that very same thing because the unions in Ontario have really, really glomped onto this. I mean, they really uh, went after this one. And I really, I'm being very frank with you, I, I don't quite understand their logic. I mean, I think there are things to fight for. I think there are hills to climb and die for, okay, where you fight the good fight. I mean, this one is what I call a fight to take away opportunities from our young people. What a horrible hill to die for. I mean, there are things we can fight for in this country. There are things we should be fighting for in this country. This one I don't get because all we're doing is reducing. Let me just tell you a quick anecdote. I went over to Ogdensburg, uh, which is right uh, Prescott, Ontario, is 45 minutes from the national capital where I live. And there's a big bridge over to the U.S. And I went over, this was only just uh, about uh, two months ago, and I went. I walked into the Walmart in Ogdensburg, New York. I was amazed there was like 15 greeters all young people by the way obviously teenagers and early 20s in there and uh, all up and down the aisles there was just an army of workers all wearing their walmart um, you know uniforms walk into any walmart in ottawa you have to fight and look and search and spend minutes of time to find a person on the floor to help you this is not my imagination all the retailers are cutting back they're going to the automated checkout counters. Loblaws is doing it. Canadian Tire is doing it. So when people say it doesn't impact at the retail level, yes, it does. Open your eyes, people. It's out there. You can see it in the stores with your own experience. Ian Lee has been with us, Brought School of Business in Ottawa, out of Carleton. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.